Hi, I have a proclamation I'd like to read you. We, uh, the Native Americans, reclaim this land known as Alcatraz Island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. <clears throat> we wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with the Caucasian inhabitants of this land and hereby offer the following treaty. We will purchase said Alcatraz Island for $24 in glass beads and red cloth, a precedent set by the white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago. We know that $24 in trade goods for these 16 acres is more than was paid when Manhattan Island was sold, but we know that land values have risen over the years. Our offer of $1.24 per acre is greater than $0.47 cents per acre the white man is now paying the California Indians for their land. <clears throat> we will give to the inhabitants of this island a portion of that land for their own, to be held in trust by the American Indian government. For as long as the sun shall rise and the rivers go down to the sea, to be administered by the Bureau of Caucasian Affairs. Uh, Richard, you're presenting this to me now. Yes, sir. We will further guide the inhabitants in the proper way of living. We will offer them our religion, our education, our life ways, in order to help them achieve our level of civilization and thus raise them and all their white brothers up from their savage and unhappy state. We offer this treaty in good faith and wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with all white men. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of American History 2. My name is Mark McClay and I'm joined, as always, by Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. So yes, good morning, Mark, and we're delighted to be welcoming Rita Humalayoki, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the John Morton Centre for North American Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. So uh, welcome, Rita, and could you tell us a little bit about your area of research? Yeah, thanks, Mark and Malcolm. It's great to be on the podcast. Um, so at the minute, I'm actually working on two projects. One is uh, finishing off turning my PhD into into a book. So that was on the language surrounding the U.S. policy of termination, which ran from 1953 to 1970. So I look at the discussions in tribal councils, Congress, and in the national press. And then the second project, which I've since moving to Turku in September, um, have started up, is on the formation of indigenous organizations in the U.S. and Canada in the Cold War era. So they're kind of interlinked, but um, two two different projects I'm working on now. Yeah, how very ambitious. I always find one's enough, but but (laughs) fair enough. Um, So this podcast in some ways, I mean, obviously it's a slightly different topic, but it's sort of a second part to our chat that we had with Ed Mayer um, on Native Americans, and he was his focus was slavery, obviously, whereas yours is a wee bit more to, around what the, how the federal government was dealing with Native Americans. Um, and we left off with him in the middle of the 19th century. And I think it'd be wise just to, before we get to your area of re- expertise in the 1950s onwards, and the era of termination, to sort of guide the listener through the broad story of the, the Native American experience especially with the U.S. government from the Civil War era onwards, um, even before we reached the 20th century. And I think that's because, especially in the public imagination, and I'm sh- I don't know, you might tell us, in reality, the final 40 years of the 19th century are incredibly consequential for Native Americans. I mean, in my own very limited understanding, I associate these years with the sort of famous headline events, such as, you know, Custer's Last Stand, you know, rare defeat for the Americans and the the, the massacre at Wounded Knee, um, a clear defeat for for the Native Americans. Um, but from reading some of the material you sent us prior to this podcast, it appears that the federal government wasn't just engaged in hunting down Native Americans; they were in fact trying a variety of different approaches to deal with them. Um, 
And to try and sum these up, I wanted to borrow an approach I like to use with my students, if you don't mind, which is, you know, what kind of three words would you use to characterize the native federal relationship in these years? Well, if I may, I would actually rather just use two words. Um, and that would be the concept of settler and settler colonialism, which I think is a really important concept that's most recent or fairly recently been introduced into U.S. history, um, borrowed from Canada and Australia, for instance. And it really characterizes the f- whole relationship of uh, the federal government and, um, or well, rather settlers or the federal government later on um, and Native Americans from the colonial period until the present. Like it's, it's still an ongoing process. Um, it's best described by, by the Australian theorist, late Australian theorist Patrick Wolfe as um, a process which seeks to destroy to replace. So removing indigenous peoples, whether violently or via other means, in order to make space for this new uh, or not so new in the case of today, this, uh, this kind of settler state, uh, or, or the U.S. So in, in this period, in the late 19th century, what we can see is kind of a shift away from those violent extermination tactics to make more space for, for the U.S. to expand to kind of, um, a different approach, shall we say, an attempt to civilize uh, the the American Indians, to integrate them into this wider U.S. public um, via varying means of of, uh, establishing farms or uh, boarding schools, banning cultural practices, kind of making them into Americans to to bring them into this wider U.S. um, republic. So that's, um, that's a shift that you can see in that period from those violent conflicts to a different approach. Okay, and um, I was just, uh, actually, I just wanted to pick up on something you said there, the whole assimilation approach. How did that differ from, you know, we, we talked with Ed last, last time out about, you know, the early 19th century, how there were these sporadic efforts. Was it the fact that it was just now a full government effort? That made it different, or were there other differences to in the assimilation? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, assimilation had been attempted in varying degrees by uh, states and colonial um, authorities priorly, but in this, at this stage, it becomes an actual official policy of the federal government. So that's where where we see the change um, with the the laws that are passed in that period, and um, and kind of putting an end, for instance, to treaty making and to and to those. Um, those violent wars that were so criticized by the U.S. general public. Cool. Yeah, and, and to pick up on, you know, you mentioned treaty making there. Um, and one of the stats and, and the things you sent us that shocked me, and I, I don't know why it shocked me, it probably shouldn't, was the, was the fact that the, the U.S. enters into 800 separate treaties with Native Americans, and yet it only ratifies 370 of, of them, but it violates every single one of those treaties. And then, as you just said, it then declares all these treaties null and void in 1871. I can only imagine this did irreparable damage to any lingering trust that remained between natives and, you know, anything the federal government was going to promise them going forward. Yeah, of course. I I mean, treaty making is is, um, such a important issue for for native nations i think um yeah so in 1871 i think the significance of that isn't so much in um in making all prior treaties sort of null 
um, it's more uh, a sense of no longer making any new treaties with Native nations. So this idea that, um, well, I guess in treaty making, it's important to understand that by making a treaty with a Native nation, uh, whether it's colonial authority or federal government later on, um, it's an, showing an acceptance of that that native group as a nation, as, a, as another sovereign entity. Um, and that's what makes treaties so important. Um, so in that 1871 decision, you can kind of see the federal government shifting away from this, no longer wanting to accept uh, native groups as sovereign entities. But treaties are still today incredibly important, even though they haven't, um, haven't in some cases been ratified or, or haven't... Um, been fulfilled, the conditions haven't been fulfilled, uh, Native nations still consider them uh, an important sign of how they have at some point been accepted as a sovereign nation and use that as as evidence of how they remain sovereign nations uh, today. Um, but yeah, in terms of the trust uh, relationship between the federal government and Native nations, of course, um, of course, that uh, is, is incredibly damaging. And then in 1887, we have something that I think is probably important to just, just highlight briefly is the Dawes Act, uh, which, you know, it sort of looms large, certainly in my kind of limited understanding of the history as an example of this late 19th century poor treatment of, of Native Americans. Could you, could you explain what the Dawes Act is and why it is so devastating and so problematic? Yeah, the Dawes Act is yeah, it's a it's a change making moment in terms of native history. So, um, in essence, it's an attempt to impose the single family household on on um, native cultures um, that were often based on you know extensive kinship and clan networks, um, not necessarily the sort of head of household and his wife and children sort of sort of idea. So, with the Dawes Act. Um, Reservation lands, um, or communally held tribal lands were split into acres of 160, or split into allotments of 160 acres each. Um, and then that would be given to each head of household and they would have to, um, try, the idea was that they would establish a farm, um, and, and support their family off of that 160 acres. Um, and then, uh, after a certain period, um, those families would then gain American citizenship. So it's kind of a dual approach of both giving them sort of agricultural land and then um, transforming them into Americans through that process. Uh, of course, in practice, what happened was that by separating those lands into 160 acres each, it left a lot of spare land um, open to white settlement. So actually, if we look at pre and post the allotment era in 1887, there were 138 million acres held tribally, communally by different Native nations. Um, but by 1934, that had been reduced to just 48 million acres. So a huge amount of land lost. Must have been accidental. Must have been accidental. <laughs> so can, yeah, can what I... A, what a convenient coincidence. And at the <laughs> same time, though, um, these weren't part of the Dawes Act, but they were... Um, um, propagated at, at that same era. Children were being sent to boarding schools, like, for instance, Carlisle Indian School was established in 1879 um, with this idea of civilizing them um, by removing them from their families and essentially bringing them up to be white or um, whatever appropriate position they could hold in American society, usually kind of labor, cleaning, that, that kind of um, activity is what they were 
um, prepared for. And also there were cultural bans on, on practicing dances within within those tribes because they were considered uncivilized or wasteful of, for instance, if a, if a dance, I think Sundance, for instance, among the Lakota takes, can take several days. Um, that was seen as time wasted from the agricultural pursuits that, that they were being encouraged to, to undertake. Can I ask a, a quick follow-up on the, the issue of the land associated with the, with the Dawes Act? Is this a deliberate prote- uh, process to deprive Native Americans of their land or is it merely a convenient outcome of what the Dawes Act actually does? It's kind of a bit of both. Um, for instance, Dawes himself, um, when he's describing this act, he uses this this idea of that we need to, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but he uses uh, the words that we need to um, teach the American Indian selfishness or that they, they lack the selfishness, the greed that um, that one needs to succeed in American society, essentially along those lines. Um, so, so his argument is that that this is helping uh, American Indians by bringing them into society and teaching them that that necessary the wanting to. Um, oh, there's even this um, this phrase of of putting them into out of the blanket into trousers where they have pockets that they can fill with money. Um, so, so there is that sense. But I think this, I mean, the, the statistics are undeniable that it can't be an accident that that vast expanse of land is opened up for white prospectors. And what land is, is opened up is generally the better land, the, the land that it might actually be feasible to, to have agricultural or have, have farms on. Whereas, um, the, the allotments given to those native heads of household tended to be on, in poorer areas, perhaps you know, not, not great soil. Um, so in, when you look at the details and practice on sort of a, a tribal sort of case by case basis, you can really see how in practice, even if this big idea, this big theory was, was this great civilizing mission in practice on the ground. Um, it seems much more like that it was a pursuit of land. Okay. And obviously as a, as a result of, these actions and, and you know many other factors going on you you see the rise of a lot of endemic poverty in in, in, the, in the native american experience as, as we move into the turn of the 20th century and does it does the federal government now that it's not viewing native americans as sovereign nations but trying to make them american um does it start to you know, in essence, try to help their situation at all? Does it assume more responsibility um, around, around the sort of first half of the, the 20th century? Yeah, I mean, I think we can see that assumption of responsibility in the assimilation era already, like taking on this mantle of we must civilize, civilize the, uh, the native population. Um, but certainly uh, there is a recognition that allotment fails. Like it's, it's undeniable that that, you know, American Indians do not turn into successful American farmers um, simply by being given a plot of land, um, or rather having a lot of land taken from them in exchange for a, a simple plot of land. Um, and the federal government does recognize this to some extent. For instance, in 1928, the Merriam Report is um, is released, which really studies the effects of allotment and shows that um, uh, how much issues that, that has caused and how poverty is is then affecting those areas. So there is certainly a concern about what to do with that situation that 
the government in itself has has caused. Can I? I mean, I'm interested in kind of this the first half of the the 20th century here. Because in the 1930s, obviously, we have the Great Depression and, you know, Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deals that he puts forward to try and drag America out of it. And then in, in the middle of that, in 1934, you've got the, the Indian Reorganization Act, I think, I think it's called. Uh, how, how are Native Americans involved in this, the, you know, the mass federal intervention in American society represented by the New Deals? Um, they're not so much brought into this idea of reshaping America, there are certainly Native activists who are trying to to intervene in, in these definitions of what it is to be American and what it is to be um, Native within America. Um, for instance, the Society of American Indians is formed in 1911, only only manages to, to maintain um, an organization until 1923, but there are key figures like Charles Eastman and Zitkala Sa who are who are active in that period, who are boarding school educated, so have that background of having having um, the government attempt to civilize them, and then still maintaining this struggle for native rights despite that. Um, in terms of the New Deal, uh, there's a real shift um, again, or an apparent shift. Um, with federal government action. On the surface, it seems that the government's accepted that they're going to make a change, that they need to improve the situation. Um, so, for instance, like you mentioned, Malcolm, the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act um, is made to establish tribal governments. They're trying to, to essentially saying that they're going to establish different tribal governments and that will help those tribes self-govern and make their own um, decisions. Uh, in addition, there's day schools established on reservations instead of instead of this boarding school system. And um, the Indian Arts and Crafts Board is also established to help promote and protect Native arts and crafts. So it seems like this is an attempt to really uh, improve the situation of Native Americans. But when you scratch the surface, there it's actually still a continuation of the very paternalist system and doesn't allow for much action from those tribes to maintain their own systems of governance, for instance, or their own um, cultural cultures or lifestyles without that kind of uh, Euro-American intervention into it. So, for instance, the Reorganization Act, uh, the IRA, um, there was a draft constitution based on European parliamentary systems that was essentially imposed on those tribes that accepted it. So that was uh, drafted before any consultation with uh, tribes on what sorts of governments they might want to establish. Um, and then in practice, when tribes were allowed to vote on whether to uh, adopt the Indian Reorganization Act, um, absentee votes were counted as yeses, like something as simple as that, of, of, um, <clears throat> of really, you could really see this, this strong will to impose it on tribes. And the reaction of, of those Native nations varies. Some do accept it and fare fairly well, but others, like for instance, the Navajo, well, what's now called the Navajo Nation, um, at the time was called the Navajo Tribe, they completely rejected it, despite all of these attempts to, you know, um, force acceptance through, for instance, the absentee yes votes and this, this sort of thing, or even things like arranging votes on days when there was a horrible storm or in places where people couldn't actually get to. And there are all sorts of accounts of, of that sort of um, attempt to really make it seem like they wanted this, but in practice 
not yeah. wasn't necessarily no. the case. Yeah, it's, it sounds really like it really is. You know, echoes of of the eighteen thirties approach and everything, and you getting different you know chiefs to sign up to it while other ones were opposed to it, but pretending they were the real ones and everything. It's it's interesting to see things hadn't changed much since the days of Andrew Jackson in terms of getting getting them to accept treaties. And I just have a, a sort of cultural question from this era, and I know that's not your focus, so if it's, uh, don't, don't worry if this isn't something you know too much about, but it just occurs to me, obviously, the 1930s, 40s, you know, that's really when you see the rise of the Western, you know, was it, I think Stagecoach is one of the huge big hits in 1939 with John Wayne and everything, and obviously these Westerns do not depict Native Americans in, in kind terms, um, until you get to the late 1960s or something when you start to get the odd one. How does how does that cultural depiction affect either Native Americans or just sort of how they're begin? Is there a shift in how they're viewed because of that depiction or was that there all along? Um, actually, I think the history of Western films, um, now I can't remember which scholar argued this, but you can see sort of a shift according to U.S. foreign policy, what happens in Western films. Um, for instance, like in that that sort of wartime era, that, that kind of World War II era, especially you get a lot of Westerns um, where the American Indian is presented as this like um, very simple evil enemy that needs to be defeated and that's kind of glorifying that American pursuit Um uh, perhaps abroad, um, whereas then in in sort of the Vietnam War era, where the war efforts far more criticised uh, Western films, you get things like Little Big Man um, and uh, Soldier Blue, much more critical depictions of of essentially just transposing this this um, this Vietnam situation into into the Western of like this this victim narrative of they're all just being slaughtered by this horrible American force. So so the image of how yeah how American Indians are used in in U.S. popular culture there's there's so many things that impact that. But um, because federal policy is so little known by the general public, there's so few people who are involved in in making it in in government as well. It, it tends to be certain individuals who are very interested or who have certain um, personal gain to, to be had through uh, federal Indian policy that get involved. Um, that actually, I, I don't think that the federal policy necessarily affects the depiction of Native Americans. I think there are other um, other factors that are more important. Moving into your era um, from from the 1950s onwards and what researchers, ha- as you mentioned, called the termination era. Before we get into it, can you explain exactly what scholars like yourself mean when you use that term? Sure. Well, believe it or not, termination as a term comes from what Congress used so at the time. So it, as as horrible as it sounds, and some, I think it was um, the Blackfoot um, leader, uh, Earl Old Person even, reference like in in the blackfoot language there is no t- translation for termination it just means you can the only way to translate it is just to kill essentially or to to extinguish so it really doesn't work as a term but what the co- what congress meant by termination in the 1950s was terminating the federal trust status of american indian tribes so it, they don't mean like an actual termination uh, or or um a kind of physical genocide, but rather just removing that separate legal status within um, within the United States. 
So through federal trust status, um, the well, whatever lands remained that were communal, communally held or um, were reservations, um, they were protected from sale by that trust status. Um, so that there were certain protections that kept those lands from being bought by white prospectors, for instance. Um, it also meant that members of federally recognized tribes would gain services from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, like including health and education, so um, schools, hospitals, that sort of thing, were the responsibility of the government to provide for those tribes. So the idea of termination was that by re- removing all those things that made them separate, um, all the, as the government put it, disabilities and limitations, by removing those services and those protections, Native Americans would somehow magically transform into full American citizens and adopt their sort of place in, in U.S. society. So that was the idea of termination. In practice, it was an absolute disaster. Um, for instance, well, it was carried out on a tribe-by-tribe tribe basis, so it wasn't kind of a blanket policy that affected everyone. Um, but for instance, the Klamath tribes in Oregon, they their federal trust status was removed in eventually in 1961, um, which meant in practice that most of their lands were lost. Um, so most of that final remaining reservation was lost. Um, and then through the loss of services and the psychological trauma of, of all this, um, all of that added up to the median age of death amongst um, Klamath tribal members dropping from what it was in 1961, 46 years, to just 39 and a half by 1971 is quite a big drop in just 10 years. So real effects on on people's lives. Yeah. I, I was I was wondering as a follow-up to that, like why now? Why in 1953? I mean, obviously this is sort of the beginning of the Eisenhower administration. This is just my own random theory and you can shoot it down with what actually happened. But I was just wondering if I had anything to do with, you know, the sort of rise of bringing Christianity into government, you know, the whole sort of, you know, Kevin Cruz's One Nation Under God thing and perhaps the Native Americans not being Christian and that being part of it? Or was it just about an economic land grab? Um, that's an interesting point. I hadn't actually thought of that sort of Christianization sort of idea in this period. Um, I think it certainly could be linked in the sense of, of wanting to unify the nation in terms of this creating this um, clear national identity or, or strengthening that. Um, it's certainly linked to the Cold War, um, with, I mean, there were even some uh, senators referring to uh, reservations as communistic spaces, sort of hotbeds of, of communism because of that communal aspect. Even like things as ridiculous as conflating, you know, red communists with red Indians in uh, on, on U.S. soil. So that certainly um, played a part. Um, there's also this impact of the, of the Second World War with... Um, with um, Native Americans being so heavily involved um, in in that war effort. Um, so there's a combination of reasons, really, um, of what motivates this. But I think that Cold War era sense of, of needing to unify the nation and get rid of this, this sense of any kind of separate status, it didn't fit into that idea uh, anymore. I now need to go away and look up in the congressional record who in Congress actually said that about the conflation of red communism 
and, and red Indians because that is just completely yeah, insane. I think it tended to be more in sort of campaign speeches and this sort of thing. Um, ah, but right, okay. when I've been looking into, or for instance, last summer when I was at the Eccles Center looking into the congressional record, there are some really shocking things that, that people say about, about Native Americans there. Can, can I just quickly, do you, can you identify who, who is, who is saying these things? Who in the Senate or in the House of Representatives is? Well, I think one of the, the, the classic terminationists is Arthur Watkins, who's um, Republican from Utah. Uh, then there's, oh, E.Y. Berry is also a pretty key fac- uh, figure um, in the termination movement as well. I think those are the top two names that come right. to mind. Yeah. That's, that, is, that is genuinely remarkable. Anyway, so, I mean, in your research, you've kind of compared the experiences of like two different tribes in this period and the kind of their dealings with the, the federal government, the Klamath and the, the Navajo. So, I mean, what is what are your investigations and your research into their responses to termination policies? What did that uncover about about the responses of these two tribes to the policy of termination? Well what I tried to do in my research is to is to look at native agency in this period rather than um, this kind of sort of victim narrative of because well termination was a disaster but what did what kind of agency could those tribes um practice within those sort of colonial colonially imposed structures of of tribal governments which as we learned are earlier are impositions of the Indian Reorganization Act or other actions following that to establish these kind of parliamentary governments within reservations um, but in practice, uh, the main difference between the Klamath and Navajo are that, that, as I mentioned, the Klamath were terminated. The Navajo were not. They weren't perceived by the government as ready. They were even categorized as predominantly Indian, whereas the Klamath were categorized as predominantly assimilated. Um, so they, so there were uh, differing ideas on how ready they were to join the American public. But um, what my research shows is that the Klamath tried to use termination as a way to gain further self-government because that's how they interpreted it initially. That's what this, this whole conversation was about in termination of of freeing them to to do to do what they wanted is, is how they interpreted it, that they would then be able to control their government better. Unfortunately, uh, as it um, became more apparent what termination would lead to, they then resisted it incredibly strongly, but were entirely ignored in Congress. Um, uh, they failed at repealing their Termination Act, though they did push it back to two times. It was initially meant to be 19... Um, 58, it was pushed back to 1961, for instance. Uh, the Navajo, um, or you know, today known as the Navajo Nation, they um, instead, though they weren't pegged for termination immediately, they used that language of uh, a sort of social evolutionary language of, of themselves as preparing for eventual termination at some indeterminate point in the future in order to gain um, social and economic programs and funding um, for their tribe, which they then in practice in some cases used to... Um, to maintain their cultures and to support their peoples and their education. So they were able to kind of harness that language of developing for um, joining American society instead to strengthen their own uh, system of government and um, and uh, social services for their peoples. So, I mean, we're in the era, in the 1950s and 60s, we're in this era of, you know, the classical or heroic era of the, of the African-American 
civil rights movement. I mean, obviously we all know there's a much longer civil rights movement that goes back into the 19th century and up into the 21st century where we, where we are now. How important is this kind of the atmosphere of, 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 of civil rights to native, to native Americans? Are they involved? Does this spur anything within, within native American communities to, to seek greater civil rights for themselves? Yeah, certainly the methods, particularly of the civil rights movement in terms of, for instance, sit-ins or occupations or, or that kind of like media, gaining media attention, um, that's certainly borrowed from both the civil rights movement and the black power movement by native activists. But there's also a real concern about conflating the issues, both at the time and now when we talk about teaching the civil rights movement. Um, we have to be very careful of presenting Native Americans as, as just tacked on to the, the classic kind of civil, uh, African-American civil rights movement idea. So what's, what's happening with Native activists in that period is that they're using those methods like sit-ins, for uh, instance, that's transformed in the Native context to fish-ins. So rather than sitting in a, a cafe, they're going to lakes where their um, treaty fishing rights are being denied and fishing there anyway, um, which leads to arrests, for um, police arrests, particularly in Washington state. This is a big, um, big event. The National Indian Youth Council becomes involved in it. They um supporting different local tribes in in trying to assert those fishing rights just by going and doing it. Um, and then, of course, the famous um, occupation of Alcatraz, you know, that's that's a big, huge media stunt. But um, they're, they're not looking for equality or in, in that sense, they're not looking for those same rights that everyone else has, which is what termination was was claiming to provide. Instead, they're opposing that um, loss of their their status as American Indian and their, uh, their status as Indigenous. So the, the main issue for Native American activists at that point is protecting their treaty rights and protecting their sovereignty and self-determination and regaining some of that land and control that they had in the past. And, and obviously the, the sort of the the solid demonstrations that we see happening and certainly the ones that have gone down in the history books, perhaps the most known one, the, the, the sort of Alcatraz proclamation, which which we began this uh, podcast with a clip from. Um, and I was just wondering, since it was yourself that, you know, you recommended that we start the episode with the Alcatraz proclamation, what was it about that that you think, you know, it's important for the viewers to have heard a snippet of? I think um, the Alcatraz Proclamation, obviously, I, I chose that partially because it's such a classic event, but also people don't really know that much about what was going on, just to kind of have a vague sense that there were American Indians who took over Alcatraz, and you know, you can still see the writing on the walls if, if you go visit the site. Um, what I wanted to bring out there, I think it was actually inspired by the podcast you did with Ed um, last month, is that they're talking about some those similar issues, um, like what, what um, treaties have been broken or, or he references, for instance, oh, that we're going to pay you with beads and whatever for, for this island. Um, so there's a sense of sarcasm of kind of, of, of using that kind of sarcastic humor to point out, um, point out the way that the government has been treating Native Americans and, and to critique that. Uh, so I think that's that's an important thing to keep in mind when listening to the Alcatraz Proclamation is is that context showing how um, you know we think about American Indians as as you know 
Custer's Last Stand or, or a colonial era and not as, as part of the 20th century. So here is an American Indian man talking about uh, treaty rights in 1969. I think that's why, why that uh, proclamation is so important. And, you know, we also, I mean, one of the other things which, you know, certainly I always think about, you know, when, when thinking about Native Americans in the 20th century is the, is the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973, the site of the, the horrific massacre of, you know, December 1890. Could you, what is the significance of the, of the occupation of Wounded Knee? And, and, do, and does that, what, does that have a catalytic effect? What does that do? Or is it part of a wider series of kind of activist interventions in, in American life? Well, Wounded Knee is quite a classic, um, well, obviously another classic example. That's part, um, part of, um, the American Indian movement specifically, which is, is one sort of branch of, of Native American activism, so to speak. Um, so the American Indian movement has also been heavily criticized for a lot, a lot of reasons, but is of course important because of these, um, very so, sort of media heavy protests. Wounded Knee obviously has that symbolic, um, importance in being the site of the massacre. Um, what people maybe don't know so much about Wounded Knees is that um, the occupation occurred there because um, because of the actions of the tribal government, which was seen as kind of a puppet to, to sort of U.S. federal authorities just carrying out their wishes. So there's sort of a dual thing there of that, that symbolic um, aspect to, to the occupation as well as as addressing real issues on the ground of, of what was going on um, with uh, that reservation. So g- given that these protests were taking place, um, I mean, how does the, how does the federal government actually respond um, to Native American activism? You know, we're obviously in just after the, the, you know, the Great Society, very active government eras come in the middle of the 60s and these sort of bigger, more symbolic events are coming just after that. Um, I mean, does that affect how the government responds um, or, 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 or do they, are they actually quite reactive and, and get quite heavily involved even under, you know, the sort of Nixon administration? Uh, well, in terms of the protests, obviously there's, there's quite a, no, no, the FBI becomes involved. There's a, there's a, real um, physical response, but in terms of more broadly federal government responses, um, in the 60s, it seems that particularly under the Johnson administration, uh, Native Americans are kind of seen as like the easy case to deal with. Um, so for instance, in 1968, the Indian Civil Rights Act is passed, um, which sounds great because it's a Civil Rights Act, but um, it's in some ways, by imposing the Bill of Rights over uh, tribal governments, it, it um, again enforced this sort of U.S. authority over over Native nations. So, so there's serious issues with um, with that Civil Rights Act, um, and it was very heavily criticized by a lot of Native activists at the time. Um, so, I think the federal response in the in the '60s and Well, it kind of echoes what the federal response always seems to be, is this attempt to fix these issues. But again, it's a kind of surface level solution. Um, 
Nixon in the 70s, Nixon's actually considered one of the best presidents in terms of Native rights because of his Self-Determination Act, um, his uh, repeal, well, not repeal, but denouncing of termination in 1970. He admits that it was a mistake, it was wrong, and and that we should move towards uh, self-determination for um, American Indian tribes. Um, But the real... Yeah, it's it's a very complex issue, so I don't want to get into too much detail about it. But when you pick apart um, the funding and and the solutions that are offered, uh, it's it doesn't offer a lasting solution to to the issues with federal Indian relations. Yeah. And I was just wondering how much are as a quick follow up to that, how many Native Americans have served in important positions in the federal government like you know is of of the government perhaps did did at any point they realize that perhaps one of the reason a lot of their plans were failing was because they were white people you know white anglo-saxons you know designing uh prescriptions for native american tribes and did they attempt to bring in voices that would have known more well um the first head of the as it was then known, Office of Indian Affairs, um, was Eli S. Parker, who is obviously a, you know, a, a close associate of Ulysses S. Grant. So that's way back in sort of, uh, the mid 1800s. I can't remember the exact years, but the next head of then the name has changed to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, doesn't come until the 1960s. So you've got a huge gap where there isn't a native person leading that. Um, and then in the 1960s, um, the, the next, uh, native head of the, of the BIA is Robert Bennett, who is a NADA. Um, but he had been involved in the Bureau of Indian Affairs in sort of lesser positions pretty much throughout his career. So the tendency is when, um, when native individuals are, uh, gain these positions is that they've worked within the federal government in, for, for quite a long time. So they're not necessarily bringing in any kind of radical change when they do get in those positions. And, you know, whatever the BIA does, it's still restricted by what the federal government determines as, as Indian policy. So they still have to fulfill those requirements. So having, I mean, um, having more people, more native people work in the BIA is one of, one of the changes in the 1970s. It's one of the, the aims that, uh, that Nixon's Indian policy introduces, but in practice, um, it's limited as to how much that that can actually change when it's still working within that same that same structure. And kind of taking the story forward from the from the nineteen seventies into the eighties and nineties, and perhaps even into the you know the twenty first you know century, how does how does Native American activism? proceed after the after the 1970s i mean where does it go and how does it link into kind of uh, you're thinking how does it link into environmentalism because i'm thinking of the you know the standing rock protests over the dakota uh, access pipeline in very very recent memory so you know what's the kind of and is there success achieved for native americans uh in terms of kind of negotiating with the federal government and you know gaining access to to lands and all that kind of thing what how do how do things transpire well, there's certainly um, important developments, for instance, with the Native American Graves um, Repatriation Act, for instance, in, I think it was 86, of, of recognition of, of, you know, things need to need to change um, with the 
Repatriation Act. It's in, in terms of, for instance, um, repatriating uh, artifacts in museums that were taken from Native nations and returning. The idea is that that, that act should help return them to to those cultures and to their um, their uses and or or for instance, um, well, most obviously, for instance, with remains of ancestors of, of allowing those tribes to then to then um, put them to rest in in whatever way um, is appropriate to them. Um, Native activism in this kind of very public form of, of the American Indian movement seems to kind of, um, I don't want to say weaken, but it, it, it kind of dies out towards the, towards the early eighties. And there isn't kind of this sense of a really big media heavy, um, or, or, uh, attention attracting, uh, movement until really Standing Rock is, is the, the pinnacle now of like modern day native activism. Um, in terms of the federal government and Native Americans, I think the Obama administration is a really important period. Um, there's not so much, you know, there are developments in the 90s, but but not so much as when Obama comes into office and he really promises to make a change and to have a real relationship um, with American Indian tribes. And for instance, he sets up the White House Tribal Nations Conference, which he holds every year to meet with um with native leaders and to talk through those issues. He also gets a lot of um, funding programs through to, to develop um, things like internet access on reservations. And, and really um, some of that makes real tangible change. But the problem is that um, this is so dependent on administration. So obviously now that Trump is in office, this has all been forgotten. I, there was no announcement even made that the White House Tribal Nations Conference wasn't going to be held. It just didn't happen. Um, so I think that's the, the real issue. And, and when we talk about settler colonialism, that this control and this paternalism that the U.S. government has over, uh, native nations, it's not really, you know, there isn't space for them to make lasting change when it's so dependent on the whims of each, um, specific administration. There's, it seems that there's very little that can be done within that structure. And I mean, I think this connect, you know, connects into kind of a broad, you know, broader understanding of the, of the history of, of Native Americans and Native America. Cause when I'm teaching a U.S., I teach a, uh, you know, a single semester, very broad U.S. history survey course that goes from the colonial era right the way up to the, the 20th century. So it's trying to cram in a huge amount of history. And I will admit myself, I tend to touch really rather lightly on Native American issues beyond the Jacksonian era. The Indian Removal Act, the Trail of Tears, and, and so on, and then the the post Civil War period of the you know the post Civil War eighteen sixties treaties, and then the the Indian Wars era up to up to Wounded Knee. So, how do you think that educators at all levels, I mean, whether in schools or universities or colleges, can more successfully integrate Native American histories into the lecture theatre or the or the classroom? Because that's something I find a particular challenge. Yeah, I can certainly understand that. Um, I think that's sort of part of the issue in how uh, Native people are viewed today in t- within the U.S. And, and abroad all over the world is sort of this, still this sense that they barely exist. Like Standing Rock kind of disrupted that idea by 
by presenting Native Americans as like we're we're still here and we have these global alliances with indigenous peoples all over the globe to to help support in opposing that pipeline. Um, but I think the thing to remember is how important it is to to remind students that Native Americans still exist. So that's that's one reason. Or I guess that's a reason to to bring bring them into the classroom rather um, rather than an explanation of how. Um, but I think, for instance, um, in terms of thinking of of what uh, what the United States is, um, how it's formed, what it's based on, you know, there is no United States without American Indians. So it's really important to to bring in those those moments and, um, for instance, um, bring. Um, getting students to read primary sources by by Native Americans, like for instance, this um, Richard Oakes's Alcatraz Proclamation, or um, there there's some great primary source collections um, from different periods. Um, um, for instance, Daniel Cobb's "Say We Are Nations" collection has has a lot of primary sources packed in, so you could integrate um, um, American Indian speeches from, for instance, the New Deal era or or related to civil rights, explaining how uh, how the how Native activists' aims are different to the aims of civil rights activists, for instance. So <clears throat> there are different ways of doing it. I can appreciate, obviously, you know, it's difficult to to bring Native Americans in when you're doing a broad U.S. history survey course. Just like I've found, it's quite difficult to cover the whole of Native American history in, a, in an hour-long podcast or 19th, 20th century history. Um, but I think you just need to remember how important it is in terms of thinking about what the United States is as a country, what its aims are, what the values are, questioning those ideas of, of what freedom is, what equality looks like, um, and how that can be varied. You know, using Native or bringing in Native perspectives really complicates those um, those preconceptions that that students and we as as teachers and educators have yeah so i've got one final question for you retta so sort of the the image in many ways in american society today of the native american i remember i had a couple of students in a class before and they both lived near indian reservations in different states they, they weren't i think they were on the east coast actually and they had this very negative view of Native Americans, like, you know, poverty, casinos, drugs, the, the whole kind of thing and everything. And, and you know, there are high poverty rates there and everything. And one of the themes of your and Ed's works, both of you, that you've talked about, and you hinted that earlier, is this theme of giving Native Americans their agency back and not just giving not being seen as victims of the past 200 300 years or even further back of, of european settlement in, in in the americas but to, to what extent does it have to be do, do you deal with also acknowledging the limits of that because in essence you know the the americans came with the guns and you know the the disease that, that you know at first and then also then an era we've talked about today the federal government is so much more powerful than any all of the tribes together combined even if they acted as one so so how do you sort of deal with sort of balancing giving them agency back and saying these were humans who had their own decisions to make and but the fact that they were not the ones who held the power um i think first off i kind of have to slightly push against this idea of giving them their agency back because i think it's it's more a an idea of um, bringing out the agency they always had and that that was all already there. Um, and I think um, 
Yes, certainly. I think in getting away from that idea of how overpowering the United States or, or other sort of national governments are over Indigenous people, um, it's just, it's so important to read Indigenous scholars and, and get to their ideas of, of um, Native cultures and what role they play. Uh, like, for instance, there's the, the work of Philip Deloria in terms of like playing Indian and, and what that notion of uh, American Indians um, what role that plays throughout U.S. history, um, and Donald Fixico, who works on 20th century Native American history broadly, and also in terms of conceptions of what history is and what time is in the Native American mind compared to to the, the U.S. context or American sort of culture. Um, kind of bringing in those different perspectives can really change how we th- how we think about. U.S. history as as not necessarily just this kind of linear victim narrative when it comes to American Indians. And I think that is an entirely appropriate place uh, to conclude. That was, as we always say, that was fascinating. That's become our kind of thing, but it, it always is. And I've one thing I've taken from this is not only learning from your your research and your your knowledge, but also I'm delivering a lecture on the 1970s in America in a week's time. And I'm now going to go back and change my lecture to include more about uh, about Native American activism, about Windy Knee, and even going to you know Alcatraz and all that kind of thing. So that's already changed my teaching, which can only be a good thing, I think, if only to, to highlight in a small way uh, the continued kind of agency and prominence and significance of Native Americans uh, in the history of the United United States. So thank you so much for for that, Rita. That was. Absolutely fascinating and incredibly, as always, I'll always learn so much from from these podcasts, and that was absolutely no exception. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was, it was great to talk to you guys. Yep. So we'll be back next month, as always, um, and we're going to be taking perhaps a, perhaps a, sharp, a sharp right turn, and we're going to be talking about the war on drugs uh, next week. Oh, sorry, next month even. So until then, thank you very much again both, and goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. credit card bill.